Welcome to the Small Business Edge Podcast with Brian Moran. Now, here's your host, Brian Moran. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Small Business Edge Podcast. My guest today is Bill Amata, Chairman and Chief Connectivity Officer at IW Group, a minority-owned and operated advertising, marketing, and communications agency, which he co-founded 33 years ago. And I am thrilled to have him on my podcast today as we celebrate Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. With that, I want to welcome to the Small Business Edge podcast, Bill Amata. Hey, Brian, really good to have this opportunity to chat with you today. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, Bill, the pleasure is all mine. And as we're going to get into this podcast, you know, I actually wanted to have you on two years ago uh, in March when you wrote an article, and we'll get into that. But yeah, what took it, you so long? Uh, <laughs> you're a hard man to track down. But it would be serendipity that we would be we would be uh, recording this podcast uh, during AAPI Month, uh, Heritage Month. So thank you for making time for me. I know you do have a busy schedule, and let's get right into it. You have an incredible career in so many facets, which I want to cover today. But you started. Let, let, let's talk a little bit about the early days, and let's get right into it. So you co-founded IW Group three decades ago, because you wanted to focus on multicultural and cross-generational markets, right? So this is back in 1990, and you started, I think, in Los Angeles? Yes. Okay. So a lot was going on back then, right? Tell me tell me a little bit about the states of multicultural, cross-generational markets in 1990. Well, I was paying attention to the marketplace in the 80s, and I noticed that uh, people started to discover African-Americans and Black Americans. And and then there was this movement to reach out to the growing Latino-Hispanic market. And somewhere down the line, I thought it might be a good idea to think about the growing Asian-American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander community. So that was always in the back of my head in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I finally had that opportunity to do something about it uh, in 1989, 1990. So did you think you'd still be around 33 years later? <laughs> Absolutely not. I, I actually thought that most of the advertising and marketing agencies would have caught up quickly mm-hmm. uh, and I would be basically retired somewhere in the Bahamas. Uh, but that didn't pan out, of course. Well, that's that's pretty good. That's that's a good uh, goal, right? About a 30 year goal. Now, you wrote an article in 2021, which I mentioned was kind of the the whole genesis or the catalyst for wanting to have this podcast. And I want to talk about that article in a little bit. But in the introduction, you wrote something that was profound, which really gave me insights into who you are and a little bit more about the Asian American community. Um, I remember this is what you wrote. I remember a time when I questioned my interest in advertising. Even members of my own family wondered if any self-respecting Asian American could make it in this industry. When I began as a contract to a large multinational ad agency, I felt great. But as I walked around the company, I wondered if there was anyone else like me. I quickly realized I was alone. Even when I had a chance to start my own shop, I hesitated. My parents never called attention to themselves, and we were a very private family. And even after I co-founded an advertising and marketing agency, I did what many Asian Americans were taught to do, work hard, 
Keep your nose to the grindstone. Don't rock the boat. Let others speak for you. Don't call attention to yourself or your family by boasting. And by all means, do not embarrass your family or yourself. That, that is a lot of weight to carry with you as you're trying to launch your own business. So how do you overcome those feelings? I think I overcame those feelings when I, I was in a meeting with a city council person. Uh, I was at that meeting and uh, there were a large number of people at that meeting. And after the meeting, the city council person from Los Angeles pulled me aside and said, Bill, I, I just want to tell you this. Your people don't cause trouble. You guys work hard. You're respectful. Uh, you pay, pay attention to the details, uh, but you always come prepared. You're not like black people and Hispanics and and even, you know, righteous white people. Um, you're the type of people that we want to have in society today. And I thought about that for about two seconds. And I said, you know, you just insulted me. Yeah. Um, you know, black Latinos, uh, these righteous white people, uh, they stick up for themselves. They yeah. speak up. And, and that was one of the epiphanies I had when I started my company is that I needed to be present and visible. Uh, and that kind of led me away from this cultural background and baggage that I had that I, that I needed to be um, visible and seen. Did you feel like you were in that back in that agency where you were all alone? Did you find other Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders feeling the same way and kind of stepping forward with you? It was really hard because when I when I had this opportunity to become a contractor, I went to the agency. I was very excited about it. And, and I took a look around and I said, wow, there are no people of color in this organization. In fact, there were very few women in that organization. Wow. Uh, and, and the first thing I thought was, wow, uh, I'm alone. Mm. Uh, and I worked really hard to try to find someone that looked like me. And I finally found someone that looked you know, a little like me, he was a, a person of color and he happened to be Latino. And, and I immediately bonded with this person because yeah. um, uh, he also felt alone in this organization. What, what, out of curiosity, what, what did your parents say when you told them you were opening your own business? Well, my parents uh, were a little dubious about it because, you know, they want to make sure that I have a solid job. And for them, mm. a solid job is, of course, in all the stereotype. Uh, positions that Asian Americans might hold, engineering, doctor, lawyer, or something else. And so when I told them I was going to start a marketing firm, the first comment on my mom's mouth is sales, car sales, <laughs> insurance sales. Yeah, yeah. You can't make money doing that. And I said, uh, but but I want to give it a try. And, and, you know, even at family gatherings, it was awkward. You know, my mom would talk about my brothers. Oh, they're both pharmacists. And my brother-in-law was an engineer and my sister was a lab tech. Uh, and when it got to me, my mom said, uh, why don't you tell everybody what you do? <laughs> I laugh because the Irish, we laugh a lot. We laugh at adversity. We laugh at death. We laugh at life. And and I mean, that that is. And, and first of all, I, my parents said the same thing to me, you know, when I started my own company. But it, it's the. You know, it's that feeling that you're like, okay, I know I'm I'm doing what I was meant to do. Did you feel that? Did you feel like this was a calling for you? 
I didn't at the time, but after a while, you know, people would come up to me and say, Bill, uh, I'm so proud of what you're doing. Uh, you're a trailblazer. You're setting a pathway for others to follow. Uh, and I didn't really feel that way because there were people that preceded me, uh, and I was actually afraid of them. Um, there was uh, an Asian-American woman that started a PR firm a few years before me, uh, mm -hmm. and she used to scare me uh, because she was forthright, opinionated, strong, pushy, uh, had spiky pink hair, and would run around circles around the companies and organizations that she worked with. And I said, I, I can't be like her. I don't think I'll ever be like her. Um, but in many respects, she was a, a, a big motivating factor in mm -hmm. how I push myself in my career. Everything but the pink spiked hair. Yeah, I decided that that wasn't <laughs> quite my style, but yeah. maybe glasses. Okay, glasses are good. So let's get let, now. Now you you've got your business; it's up and running. And and I pulled from so many great articles that I read about you and articles that you wrote. I want to talk a little bit about hiring and retaining talent, which is for the last thirty years has been right, difficult in 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 the best circumstances. But you you wrote this. I'm part of a team of amazing professionals who enable companies, governmental agencies, foundations, and nonprofits to connect effectively with multicultural and cross-generational consumers, business owners, and entrepreneurs. So you start this trailblazing company. How hard was it to find talent, find and retain talent? And are some of the people still with you? I mean, I, what's the longest tenured person you have in your agency today? The longest tenured person that's in the agency today in our company is our financial business manager. Uh, he has been with me from almost the beginning of wow. when we started. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, Nita Song, the president of our company, uh, she started off with the agency back in the 90s. And like many companies that uh, represent different corporations and foundations, uh, those corporations and foundations, when they have an opening, they almost always eye the people they work with at an agency. So mm -hmm. they managed to lure Nita away. Uh, she went to uh, work in a major corporation. Then she went for to a dot-com and then several years later, she came back and said, you know, I'd like to return to the agency world and I'd like to consider coming back to IW Group. Uh, wow. And she ultimately came back to the agency and she's now president and CEO of the company. That's fantastic. You know, that and that, too, has got I always said that when I, I was on in the publishing side uh, of the business at magazines, I'd say, you know, some of the best compliments people can pay us is trying to poach our salespeople or our editors. And uh, I always said to our salespeople, if you go anywhere, go to a client so you can give us business. <laughs> yeah. And I think a lot of people worry about that, especially agency people. They get angry uh, and upset when they find out that one of their clients wants to, quote unquote, poach someone. Uh, I consider it an investment. Yeah. Uh, I consider it a compliment. Uh, and many of the people that work at our agency have left and now are our clients. Yeah. And so uh, if you have an opportunity as a company um, to place a person um, and fill an opening at an existing client, that's just an insurance policy that you're going to continue to work with right. that particular company. I totally agree. It's it, it is. It's you. You're seeding the investment today that's going to pay dividends for years. 
Let's talk a little bit about company culture in another article. I thoroughly enjoy what I do, and I believe that the best work product originates from people who love what they do. I have a dream job and surround myself with people who care about their work, their colleagues, their neighborhoods, and the broader communities where they live, work, and play. Was that your company culture from day one? Did you feel like, you know, I I need to have a place that's inclusive, that uh, represents a positive uh, atmosphere and environment, and, and I don't want any bad apples? Uh, absolutely. And, and you know, we're having these uh, great conversations these days about diversity, equity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. But the challenge with DE&I is that we forget the B and the B is belonging. And I always felt it was important to have people that felt like they belonged at the company, but also in the communities and organizations that they served. Uh, and so that was always a, a very important part of having a business is making sure that you surrounded yourself with people who cared not only about the work product mm. uh, of the agency, but also cared about the people they worked with and the communities they lived in. And so I always uh, encourage, and to this day, encourage uh, people within the agency to participate in programs, events, activities that not only benefit uh, our industry, the advertising, PR, marketing industries, but also the communities that they live in and work in. So was it a, did you make a conscious effort um, on hiring a diverse group of people when you started your agency? Did you say, I can't have, uh, you know, because you felt alone when you were at that agency and and when you started your agency, you know, it'd be very easy to say, I'm only going to hire Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. Right. And and people who look like me think like me. So there's a comfort level there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, when I was working at the agency and I felt alone, I thought, OK, now I have a company. I have some control over this. I can hire whomever I think would work well in the company. So I surrounded myself with a lot of Asian-Americans, Chinese, Korean, Vietnamese, people of mixed race. And then one day uh, one of the clients came in, visited and said, hey, Bill, I thought you said you were diverse. Ah, and yeah. I said, we are a diverse company. And he goes, all I see are Asian people in this organization. Where are the black people? Where are the Latinos? Where are the white people in this organization? Yeah. Uh, and it kind of struck me. And, and, and I said, yeah, where are they? So, yeah. so I made a conscious effort to actually diversify the company so that it actually looks a little bit more like the communities where we live. Right. And, and how long after you had started the agency did you adopt that? kind of philosophy uh, probably 15 20 years later uh, because one of the clients came by and and, yeah. and specifically said hey uh, you know you always talk about diversity but i'm not seeing that diversity in your company so where is it and, and that was a kick in the pants i have to say because I, I realized that we could we have a lot of diversity in the asian american community mm-hmm. uh but we are still all asian uh mm-hmm. and so i needed to look elsewhere to try to find that diversity. Um, and, and that has been really important to the agency ever since. That's interesting. That's, that's, he did you, that was a great service that he did for you. Is he still a client? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. All right. I want to get into your clients. So again, another quote, I have experience working with some of the best known brands in the world including Coca-Cola, General Motors, Lexus, McDonald's, MGM Resorts, 
Toyota, Walmart, Walt Disney, Wells Fargo, and many others. That is an A-list. I mean, that that's a list that I think any agency uh, you know, would be proud to have, any one of those clients. So what did it take for you? for those companies to to buy into your brand your your philosophy and and the work output that you were creating it's if i were to give some advice to businesses one thing that uh, i learned very early on which i found out was a mistake is that i always went from point a to point b with a straight line So if you're marketing or advertising or public relations, the very first place or the first person you go to when you're pitching your company is to the marketing person or the communications person or the advertising person at a company. And I realized after trying multiple times to get into certain companies, some of these big Fortune 500 companies, and not getting anywhere that I had to switch things up. And I, I have to say, uh, this started with one of my um, prospective clients at the time. It was McDonald's. I was trying very, very hard to get into McDonald's. I don't know how many different pathways I tried, uh, but I wasn't getting anywhere. And I realized I was always trying to do the same thing. Even though I thought I was going in different directions, I was going to the company with the same message over and over. You got to target Asian Americans. We're the fastest growing population in the U.S., and I would get this look on uh, the marketing team space. Okay, that sounds great. Yeah, we're, we're not ready to do Asian Americans. We can barely get our head around the other communities. And the next year, I'd go back. you got to target Asian Americans. We're the fastest growing population in the U.S. We're loyal consumers. We love quick service restaurants. And would get blank stares, go back, same person, same message. And I realized I was doing this incorrectly. Mm. So I... If you're a small business, you have to pay attention to your audience and who your audience is and what your audience is feeling and seeing and observing and, and some of their pain points. And so I decided when I went back to McDonald's, I would change that conversation. And I said, let's talk about Europe. Uh, and the McDonald's executive went, well, what? I thought you're the Asian-American executive that focuses on Asian American markets. Why do you want to talk about Europe? And I said, let's just talk about Europe. What are you guys doing in Europe? And he said, that's the most ridiculous question I've ever heard. We do plenty in Europe. Uh, We're in all the major European countries. And I just said, pick any country that you're currently doing some work in that may be a little bit multicultural. And he goes, well, Belgium, of course. And I said, what about Belgium? He goes, well, they speak French and Flemish a little bit of a Dutch-sounding German on the eastern part of their their border. He goes, what's your point? I said, so you do multicultural marketing in Belgium, in French and Flemish, a little bit of this Dutch-Germanic language. And he goes, yeah, and in English as well. And I said, so you're doing all that multicultural work in Belgium. And he goes, what's your point? I said, did you know that the Chinese population and Indian population in the U.S. is actually bigger than the entire population of Belgium? And if you were to put every Asian American and Pacific Islander on an island today, let's just say Ellis Island, and it's separated from the U.S., it would be larger than Belgium, Portugal, Norway, Denmark. Mm -hmm. And and I said, oh, and by the way, Greece as well. And he said, stop. (laughs) Are you saying there are more Asian Americans in the U.S. than Greeks in Greece? And I said, absolutely. And he said, 
you just got my attention. So I do think for small businesses, um, if uh, they're taking an approach that they think will work and it's not working, try something else. That's fantastic advice. That really, wow. That's, if the front door is not open, try the side window, try the back door, right? Try, and and a lot has changed in the way that we approach business. You know, I think we, history will show that we look at business pre-pandemic, pandemic, post-pandemic, right? And that there is this, there, there, there were these major shifts that happened in business, and the and the business and the companies that were successful navigated those shifts. And in fact, in some cases, they were able to predict what was coming. So let's talk a little bit about the pandemic because, as I did my homework on you and IW Group, I wrote in in my notes section, IW Group beats the pandemic. <laughs> right there were there were companies that. Maybe it was a crystal ball. Maybe it was their strategy. Maybe it was, you know, they sat down and they reconfigured their their GPS plan for, for the pandemic. But you definitely seem to be one of them. I'm going to read you just a quick paragraph from an article. I think this is an ad age, March 15th, 2022. From tapping into the power of K-pop to embracing the possibilities of the metaverse, 2021 was a year of extraordinary first for IW Group. As the pandemic continued to limit in-person activities and onset production, the firm explored new creative approaches that not only yielded award-winning campaigns for clients like McDonald's and Jack Daniels, but also an unprecedented expansion into consumer segments, including LGBTQ, Hispanic, and Indigenous for the traditionally AAPI-focused agency. And that's a little bit about what you were talking about, the fact that, you know, that you can address multicultural markets and groups and consumer segments. And maybe that coincides with the fact that your own agency had gone through maybe somewhat of a transformation as you brought other people in. Do you think that, do you look back on that and say, it's kind of amazing how everything coincided? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The pandemic impacted all businesses, including ours. Mm -hmm. uh, but one thing that was really important is that we kind of thought about all the people that succeeded through all sorts of calamities, you know, uh, human calamities, uh, natural calamities. Uh, and one of the things that uh, we fall back on is some of the things that we've learned along the way through our own heritage, but what we've learned from other people that have succeeded. And one thing about Asian Americans that, you know, I've learned, even though I'm, I was born here, my parents are born here, mm -hmm. that in times of crises, there are times of opportunity. Um, and so that was one. But I also remembered there was an Italian American woman named Catherine Barchetti who wanted to start a retail empire in Pittsburgh and was having a lot of issues getting started. So many things were happening to her people trying to block her, people getting in the way, mm -hmm. financial issues, uh, you know, women leading companies at th that time, that was rare. And her quote was, make a customer, not a sale. And I realized that uh, in times of uh, natural calamities or man-made calamities, there are opportunities to really make a customer. So we looked at the pandemic as just one obstacle um, to what we were doing. 
and we looked for those opportunities. And when you think 360 as an as a, as a company, you realize that there are multiple ways to help people solve some of their pain points. And we looked at that as an opportunity to solve some of the pain points that companies were going through. There's a Chinese symbol, right? I think I, I'm going to mess this up. Yeah, it's when she or something like that, where it's opportunity and chaos are yeah. intertwined, right? Amid Absolutely. chaos, there is opportunity. Yep. The, the two characters together is basically trouble, chaos, problems, uh, but but they also are, are the same type of words that focus on opportunity. So in times of chaos, there's always opportunity. Absolutely. We talk about that a lot on our podcast with our clients, you know, that in times of trouble, companies pull back, companies go out of business and that leaves, okay, where do those customers go that, that work with that company? If companies are pulling back, then that means there's an opportunity where they vacate it. You know, smart, smart decision-making can lead you to increase market share, new customers, new suppliers, and 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 often at lower cost, lower barriers to entry. Yeah, and you give um, the listeners to your podcast some great advice. Sometimes you have to step back and 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 take it slowly. Mm. And I know when you're in the midst of a pandemic, you're losing customers, you're panicking. But sometimes you just need to step back for a moment and say, "What do I need to do to get this done?" Um, and, and I was reading one of your, your articles as well, where you're talking about AI and mm. that, uh, you know, you don't need to jump in right away. Um, take a little bit of time to explore, to learn, to understand things. And there are multiple ways to, you know, solve problems and issues. Sometimes you just need to step back and, and, and ask yourself, what can I be doing? What should I be doing? Where do I need to go and where do I need to take the company and organization? before you jump in and try to fix things. Yeah. Otherwise it's a rabbit hole. Otherwise it's, it's, you know, there's so much information out there. It would take you forever to consume it. Let, let, in that case, let other people do it, you know, and, and, and go to your trusted sources to understand, you know, what are the three applications I should be looking at for illustrations or, uh, you know, email marketing or something like that. I don't need to look at a hundred. I need to look at the three that a trusted resources is giving me. Yeah. And, and, and one thing that I think for businesses uh, that are out there listening to this is that they need to think 360 and mm. always consider that the next day they could lose a customer. Uh, they might have an opportunity put in front of them. They might have a challenge with an employee or a staff. Always be thinking about the what ifs and, and have some contingency plans. Uh, in case, because, you know, even though we've represented some of these companies that we work with for more than 20 years, something can always happen that could disrupt that. And it's always a good idea to think about what those disruptions might be and plan ahead and think ahead on what could happen. Uh, and if the pandemic taught us anything, it's that we always need to be prepared for the unexpected. Now, you're speaking my language, Bill. <laughs> my my listeners who listen to a number of my podcasts are laughing right now because I talk about that all the time, that there's no straight path to success. You got to have contingency plan. And if you actually have it written out, I call it the emergency response playbook. Take the 10 biggest things that you worry about in business, 
good and bad, right? Like what if all of a sudden, you know, our entire inventory sells out? I had that on, on a previous podcast during the pandemic. A new market opened up for a, a gentleman who makes corn tortillas. He would sell them to restaurants. And all of a sudden the pandemic hit and all of the, you know, home chefs bought out his his corn tortillas and he opened up an entire new market. You know, well, what if that happens? How do I pivot my business? So that's a great point. That's a key takeaway for our listeners. But I want to get back to you because in in that same article that that I had referenced, um, they, they wrote, uh, characterized by a renewed emphasis on information, innovation, transformation, and purpose, IW Group's landmark 2021 has culminated with being named Ed Age's 2022 Multicultural Agency of the Year, one of the marketing industry's highest honors. It is part of the trade organization's prestigious A-list and creativity awards, which recognizes the best forward-thinking leaders, top agencies, and creative innovators of today. This is 32 years after you started your agency. You win one of the highest awards in your industry. How does that feel? Well, it feels great, of course. It's always great to be recognized by your peers mm-hmm. uh, and also recognized by the people that you're competing with. Uh, whenever that happens, of course, you feel real good, but that also inspires us to do even more. And so uh, when you win these awards, uh, it, it motivates the people in the team to do better the next time. Uh, but it also encourages our competitors to to do more. And mm. so uh, this is what we love about these awards. Uh, but I'm not necessarily crazy about every award that we win. I, I feel like your work should speak for itself. And that's probably the Asian part in me. So I don't like to brag about things. Yeah, I, I want to be able to show people uh, what we're capable of doing uh, rather than talk too much about it. But I'm trying to get away from that because I know how much it means to not only the clients to win these awards, uh, but it also means a great deal to the people that I work with. I, I couldn't agree more. Although Cicero, a great Roman statesman, once said, when your work speaks for itself, don't interrupt. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. But this time period now and your tremendous success that you've had and i'm going to get into the awards not all of them because that list is as long as my arm but here you are 32 years into creating this incredibly successful award-winning agency and you're at the top of the the game right there's also tremendous backlash going on against asian americans it reminded me a little bit of Bill Russell. I saw a documentary on Bill Russell, which was phenomenal. Um, and when he was with the Boston Celtics playing basketball, uh, he was winning NBA championships year after year. And he was actually recognized by his town in, in uh, I think it was uh, uh, Massachusetts, I think he was, it was man of the year. He was given something like man of the year by the town. And he said, wow, isn't this great? You know, they're accepting me. They're accepting my family. And he said to his wife, you know, let's, you know, I've got a lot of money now. Why don't we move to one of the nicer sections of town? And when the people found out about it, and I I think this is in the sixties, when the people found out about it, they tried to boycott him from buying in their neighborhood. 
you know, they told their neighbors, don't sell your house to the Russells and whatnot. And these are the same people who honored him and joked around with him, took pictures with him at an event less than a month before. And it's it's recognizing the accomplishments, but not recognizing the person. So you wrote, in what my opinion is, a, a foundational article for what was happening with Asian Americans and and uh, uh, Pacific Islanders in, in 2021. It was March 10th. It was actually about five days before that other article came out and talked about how great IW Group was. The title of the article was, In the Face of Hatred, It's Time for Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders to be Visible. And your subtitle was, We Must Be Intentional in Sharing Who We Are and What We Are Doing to Advance Ourselves and Others. I'm going to read two quick paragraphs. As I look back on history, I find a disturbing pattern that we should all acknowledge. Whenever there is an act of terrorism, a new virus, or an economic downturn, fear and loathing return with a vengeance. Individuals and groups are targeted for hatred, abusive rhetoric, and acts of violence because of fear, ignorance, and a need to cast blame. Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders are being blamed for the coronavirus pandemic, and our former president, who should have calmed nerves and reassured the public, fanned the flames that fueled the rise of anti-AAPI sentiments. And in less than a year, more than 3,000 acts of anti-AAPI hatred, bias, xenophobia, and violence were reported. Now, you went on to say, because you were taught at a very young age to be quiet, let others speak for you, that you actually thought that that number was much higher. What's what's your mindset as all of this is going on, right? Now, you, 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 you're this trailblazer. You're having tremendous success, but the pandemic is, it's, it's causing like this, it must have been anxiety because of all of the um, hatred that was focused on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders at the time. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it was painful to see the news and hear the news. It was painful to hear about the acts of violence and bias that uh, was occurring across the country and other parts of the world. And at that point, I said, not again. Mm. Um, not again, 9-11, uh, you know, thick people and, uh, you know, South Asians were blamed or uh, people from the Middle East were blamed that lived in the U.S. Mm. Uh, stars, again, uh, more blame uh, directed toward the Asian American community. And now this, and I realized at that point that I could uh, sit back, say absolutely nothing and just do my job or lean in. And, and do something about this. And one of the things that I suggested to Asian community leaders around the country is that we not only uh, speak up about this, uh, but we do something about it because there were a lot of signs that said, stop Asian hate and stop this and stop this. And I said, somewhere down the line, we're going to have to stop saying stop and say go. Mm. Uh, and, and in a time when storytelling is so heavily valued by different companies, I was saying, uh, okay, great. Empathy, storytelling is wonderful. Now we have to get to story living and story doing. And I started to reach out to different companies and organizations and said to them, you as an Asian American need to step up. You need to be visible and seen. Uh, but you don't have to do this in a mean way or in, a, in, a, in an obnoxious way. But let people know that you are part of the fabric of this country uh, and 
they are using your products and services and your knowledge and your wisdom each and every day. That's the founder of Zoom, the founder of LinkedIn, the founder of Pinterest, the founder of YouTube, the founder of Twitch. All of these companies were started or co-start, uh, co-founded by Asian Americans. Mm. And I think a lot of those companies and those executives realize that you can't just do your job every day, keep your nose to the grindstone and hope that somebody will eventually notice you. You've got to step up and say, you know, I'm, I'm part of this country. Uh, I help create this. You use this platform every day. Uh, I'm part of this organization. I, I've created these scholarships or lead in this way. Uh, and I wanted all of the Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders out there to be visible so that everyone can see that we are contributing to the progress of our country. Uh, we are creating jobs. Uh, we are in every community. We live in the neighborhoods that you live in. We shop at the same stores. So that became important to me. By the way, I'm not going to let you get away with talking about the Celtics when I'm from L.A. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. You want magic, Jabbar. I'm, I'm leaving this to an Irish American to talk about the Celtics. <laughs> I'm not even a Celtics fan. I, I was. I grew up a Knicks fan. Oh, so. oh you better watch out. You're going to lose some uh, lose some listeners. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm a big Lakers hysterical. fan. That's anyway, hysterical. But Bill Russell, um, uh, Bill Russell, and a lot of um, the people that support Bill Russell, you know, are, are trailblazers for us. And I think even for Asian Americans, and uh, we also need to recognize that this country was built on a lot of different ideas, views, values, uh, oppression, struggles. Mm. And so I think for Asian Americans, we also felt it was important for us to lean in and be better allies to Latinos, to African Americans, to indigenous communities, the LGBT community, women, and even, you know, non-Hispanic white Americans, um, that we needed to lean in and support those communities so that they could also realize their dreams, their view, uh, realize their dreams, but also be able to express their views and ideas as well. Mm. And uh, that Asian Americans could play a better role or a bigger role in making that happen. So that's where you remind me of Bill Russell, because you had this success. It would have been perfectly okay if you just sat back. In fact, that's what people expected of you, right? You You would say your own family, you know, Bill, don't say anything. You've got everything you wanted and, and you know, aspired to, right? It, it's yours now. You, you, do you risk losing that if you speak out? And and in a sense, Russell, you know, he went down south, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, ran some basketball camps, spoke with Martin Luther King, you know, participated in protests and, and whatnot. Um, because he saw injustice, he knew he was a visible figure, he would draw attention to it, and he did something about it. And and I applaud you for that. Really, that article was very inspiring to me. Um, so yeah, and, and you culminated, you wrote, reach out, speak out, take action, invite AAPIs for discussions, and learn the facts. And and I love that that part of it. Um and that it was time to be visible. So let me ask you a question. It's two years later, the pandemic has subsided and people 
for all of the anger and hostility and vitriol that people have, I think there's also a sense of wanting to return to normalcy, like that that comfort zone. Okay, you know, I'm not anxious. I'm not stressed out. I just want to get back to work. And maybe they're, 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 all of that bias and discrimination just goes back under a rock. But do you feel like that, that you were successful in, in your campaign? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's still work in progress. But one thing I feel has uh, led to that success is I, I, I made a realization or I had a realization that I need to be better about reaching out to different communities and, and telling my story. And if I don't get invited, kind of invite myself. Mm. So I've adopted all these different universities around the country because, you know, a lot of times uh, the Asian American community, we focus on the coasts, the East Coast and the West Coast, and maybe Chicago and, and Houston get thrown in there occasionally. But I realized that uh, if I'm going to do a great job telling my story, uh, and telling the story about Asian Americans, and I need to reach to the reach out to the heartland of America in places that you may not necessarily find a large number of Asians, like Mississippi. So I've adopted the University of Southern Mississippi, mm. or I, I visited the University of Central Missouri. Uh, I've spoke at uh, New Mexico State in Las Cruces, uh, and, and and I'm traveling all around the country um, to talk to different communities about uh, who we are and what we're about, and and the contributions we're making, but also what can we do um, to change the, the narrative in our country about blaming people whenever there's a pandemic or, or, or a challenge that the country faces. So is that, is, is that the direction you're, you're, I mean, I looked at your, your, the list of organizations you either founded or that you sit on. Um, you know, one of the things that impressed me was the national millennial community which I think you now have a 30, was it 35 universities and colleges involved? Well over 40 now, and we're okay. now in 42 states and different U.S. US jurisdictions. Uh, and that, that group was founded uh, initially to dispel some of the negative myths and misconceptions about millennials. And ultimately, uh, with the new cohort of Gen Zers in colleges and universities and high school now includes that group of uh, uh, young adults, and we travel around the country. And of course, this is a very diverse group. It includes Black, Latinx, LGBTQ, Indigenous, Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, but also includes uh, non-Hispanic whites. Uh, mm. Because in these conversations around DE&I, we forget something very important, that we need to have a broad range of diversity, including diversity of mindset, regional diversity, uh, economic diversity uh, in order to really address some of the things that uh, we have to confront in our country. Uh, and so the National Millennial Gen Z community has actually met more than 350 executives at over 130 companies, nonprofits, governmental agencies, and foundations to help young people participate in the process of problem solving early. Mm. And I think the boomers and the Gen Xers, we love to clog the pipeline. Mm. Uh, you know, boomers, you know, we turn 60 and then all of a sudden, oh, we still have a little gas in the gas tank. Uh, yeah. We can we still have something to contribute. So we don't retire. That clogs the pipeline for the Gen Xers. Uh, and then the millennials get stuck behind the Gen Xers and, and, uh, and 
when that happens, uh, there's a lot of frustration. Uh, people aren't able to matriculate in a college or university or in a corporation or foundation. And I'm realizing that with five generations and occasionally six generations in the household or at work, yeah. it's time to pull in younger generations early to help solve some of the challenges that we have around the world. I completely agree. Although I'm not retiring anytime soon, but I completely, yeah. <laughs> I completely agree. I, I've always said that diversity is a competitive advantage in business. That it's if you know if you if you can't see it like that. It, you, you mentioned earlier in the podcast about you know taking that 360 degree view, and you don't get that. You know, if it's, you know, 10 white men in a room, you have maybe a 90 to 180 degree view, you know, but when you start adding in women and younger people and blacks and Asians and Latinos, all of a sudden that view becomes greater and greater and greater, different thoughts, different, you know, they come at it from different angles and, and you know, they say they, they start offering suggestions and that gives you as complete a picture as you can possibly get. Now, I say that and I will I will add this because I often don't don't I, I guess I'm I'm one of those people who don't speak up as much as I should. But I welcome the opportunity to participate in diversity conversations. But I know that I'm not always wanted, not because of who I am, Brian Moran, but because I'm a white middle-aged male. In, in in many cases, I'm viewed as the enemy. You know, you're the reason that we're in this situation. And I said, well, that's not exactly accurate, but I respect where you're coming from and I just walk away. And I say, okay, if you don't want my help or my advice, I'm, I'm here, it, it, it's like somebody's trying to build a house. And you know what? I built a couple of houses in my day. But if you don't want my help, that's I completely understand. You know, I think I'm I'm where you are in terms of giving back, you know, what it, or paying it forward. And what great opportunities we have, you know, and if you ask me unless I'm doing something else and I can't commit to it, more times than not I will say I'm happy to help. I I volunteer, I mentor, I speak at events. Just ask me. And 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 know that I'm not the enemy, that I'm not going to prevent you from succeeding. And it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. Like, I don't need to lose in order for another group to win. And I can, I say that with all the love in my heart, nothing, no malice towards anyone. I don't want to get canceled. I All I want to do is help as many people as I possibly can. And Brian, you do that every day. I mean, your 100 podcasts are... are are absolutely brilliant. Uh, you're, you're pulling in a diverse group of people to talk about their stories, which is absolutely essential. Uh, and your allyship is even more essential. Uh, one thing that I do find troubling with the E&I conversations is that we forget, we forget to find a way to include white Americans in these conversations. Uh, yeah. and, and, and we have a tendency to use these labels, which um, goes against exactly what we're talking about because DE&I has the word inclusive or inclusion. And inclusion is everyone. But if people don't have the B uh, and people don't feel like they belong in this conversation, then they're going to move away from that conversation. And I think that is never going to help 
anyone um, advance if we exclude people that uh, you know want to find a way to help. Uh, yeah. And the same goes in our industry. Uh, I feel very strongly that you know there's this we have this competitive nature that uh, that uh, you know we should not help our competitors. I actually feel differently about that. Uh, mm-hmm. I believe that uh, we should help our competitors. Uh, and that fuels innovation. We're, we talk a lot about innovation, but if our competitors are weak, um, people get a little lethargic and, and, and do the same things over and over again. Um, I feel very strongly that we have to include everyone and we have to support uh, innovation by supporting everyone that wants to start a business, including the people that are competing directly with us. I I couldn't agree more. I, I you know, it's it's like that whole candle. I can't remember. Like uh, you don't lose you don't lose a flame when you light another candle. You don't you know, your own flame doesn't go out. It does again, it doesn't have to be a zero sum game. In my business, there are, you know, I see well, I, I don't even call them competitors. I, what I say is, you know, there are 30 million small businesses in the country. That's enough for all of us. You know, if I can help you in any way, just ask me. I'll be on your podcast. I'll write a blog post for your site. I'll speak at your event. That that's a win-win situation for for me. Okay, we're kind of in the home stretch here, which is amazing because I know I've left stuff on the table and I hope I've done your career justice because now I want to talk about some of the awards and recognition that you've received. Now, I'm not going to read them all, I promise, because it is amazing. It, it let me let me just tell the, my audience some of the things that have been written. IW Group has been called one of the most award-winning multicultural agencies of all time with all your wonderful clients. And you have received, let's see, Entrepreneur of the Year Award, Top 100 Most Influential People in Advertising, Pioneer Award, Community Champion Award, Executive of the Year, Champion for Diversity and Inclusion, and on and on and on. Two of the most recent ones with the way I looked at them, you know, PR Week, Hall of Fame. You were included in the in the 10th class of PR Week's Hall of Fame in 2022. And then, of course, Ad Ages 2022 Multicultural Agency of the Year. Is there one award, one or two awards that you look back on your career and say, that's the one that really felt great to win that maybe it was the first one or being recognized by a a group outside your segment i would say the award that meant the most to me was an award from a community-based organization not very large that uh the executive director got on stage and said uh I get a lot of money and support from major corporations. Uh, this corporation, a Fortune 100, this corporation that is a banking and finance organization. But the contribution that meant the most to me in our organization is the volunteer support that I got from Bill. And that was the most meaningful award. And, and it's not an organization with thousands of members is an organization with two or three hundred members mm. uh, and it is a, a local community-based group and that group award meant the most to me that i had an impact on a small meaningful organization that's doing some great work locally fantastic fantastic 
Uh, what's next? What 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 what's on your bucket list for the next year or so? Well, I want to keep expanding the National Millennial and Gen Z community. I want to make sure that uh, I am creating a pathway or multiple pathways for people to find success in small business. But I also want to remind people that what is so cool about uh, being a business person in the United States uh, is that we are learning from all the business people that preceded us. Mm. Uh, and, and I just want to remind all of your listeners that we can learn something from every single person we meet, not only our customers, not only people that listen to podcasts, uh, but all the people that preceded us. And, and, I, and I use a lot of different quotes, uh, like uh, the Latino community came up with this quote, and I don't know who invented it, but they say, donde comen cinco, comen seis. If you could feed five people at your dinner table, there's always room for a sixth or a seventh or an eighth. And for the business folks out there, I want them to know that every single idea that comes to their table from an employee or from a customer or from somebody they, they just met, that idea has some merit, uh, regardless of whether or not they agree with it or not. And then you talked about Bill Russell. Well, Bill Russell reminds me of, of an African-American patriot from the Tuskegee Institute, um, Booker T. Washington. And he mm-hmm. once said, if you want to lift up yourself, lift up someone else. And and I feel very strongly that that is something that we as business people need to do is not only lift up our employees and lift up our communities, but even lift up people that we may not always agree with or a competitor, because ultimately that's going to come back to you um, in multiple ways. So there's a lot of different things that uh, we could talk about, but I just want everyone to realize that, uh, Learning is a journey that continues and is ongoing, and there's always something along the way uh, that you can learn. And like you said in one of your notes about AI, uh, take it slowly. Yeah. You know, sometimes yeah. you, you, if you go too quickly, you're going to miss the thing to the right or to the left or above you or below you. Uh, take it a little slowly because uh, you might miss something that could be very important. Enjoy the journey. Enjoy the journey. Thank you, Bill. This was everything I had hoped for and more. It really, it was, it was special having you on my podcast. I think you, um, obviously, your success speaks for itself, but your heart and and your compassion is noteworthy and probably as big, if not bigger, than all of the accomplishments that you've had with your agency. So, thank you for continuing to give back and and pay it forward. Thank you. It's my pleasure. All right. Bill Amata, Chairman, Chief Connectivity Officer at IW Group. I appreciate you being on the Small Business Ed Podcast. And to our listeners, thank you again, as always, for your feedback, for your suggestions. I got a ton this week from you, so keep them coming. And uh, look on our resource page for ways that you can follow Bill and uh, I'll put some of the articles that uh, we discussed today on the resource page so you can you can read them. And thanks again. And we'll see you next week on another edition of the Small Business Edge podcast. Have a great day, everybody. You've been listening to the Small Business Edge podcast with Brian Moran. Please visit our website, smallbusinessedge.com, for a listing of future podcasts.